Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. A reading from the book of Ezekiel. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzai, by the Kabar River, in the land of the Babylonians. The hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being. And on the right side, each had a face of a lion. And on the left, a face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side. And each had two other wings covering its body. Each went straight ahead. Whenever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and the structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz. And all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. The rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved... The wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Spread above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. 
Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. A brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. The word of the Lord. Before we step into Ezekiel, smiles and uh, tears first. Friday night, I was down with the men's retreat. Uh, we have 45 men down uh, there in, uh, near Woodland Park. And I just wanted to share with you quickly how the retreat began. We had a great meal, get together, the speaker gets up, and here's how he starts the first talk of the first session. His name's Clarence. He said, I'm Clarence, I'm black. And I brought my friend Jerry with me, who's also black. And the reason is because I did not want to be up here alone in the mountains with 45 white guys. <laughs> They're having a great time down there at Woodland Park, and uh, so glad for the men's retreat. And tears. Uh, whether you know it or not, over the last 10 years, everything we've done here in this room has been fixed and fingerprinted by a special member of our staff, our service producer. She has been uh, not only a servant to you, to us, she's been like a pastor on our staff, a confidant, an encourager, but overall, she has been a servant of Christ, a, a minister in his kingdom. Well, Vivi Lemus, is uh, moving on from being our service producer. She's already started a job downtown working with a law office on the front lines of helping work for just immigration and helping people who are going through that uh, extremely difficult process. So today, we want to acknowledge Vivi Lemus and thank you for 10 years of ministry at Waterstone. Tell her how much we miss her. She's in the back there. Would you? Thanks, Vivi. Tony and Vivi are still going to be here at Waterstone, AP, their daughter, and uh, we're so glad to have them at Waterstone. Are you ready for Ezekiel? <laughs> the Lord be with you. <laughs> In the movie, uh, Waking Ted Divine, a 10-year-old boy comes up to the interim priest at his church and asks him, do you ever see God? 
And uh, the young priest responds back, uh, not directly, though I get revelations. And then the boy asked him, does your job pay well? And the priest says, no, uh, the rewards of my work are mostly spiritual. And then the young priest asked the boy, have you ever thought of giving your life in service to the church? And the young boy says, not really. I don't want to work for someone I never see and who doesn't even pay minimum wage. (laughs) Do you ever see God? Ezekiel, on his 30th birthday, the day that if he was in Jerusalem, he would have been anointed into the priesthood of the holy temple is sitting thousands of miles away in Babylon by an irrigation ditch at a labor camp. July 31st, 593 BC, the most disappointing day of his life. When he receives visions of God. Now next week, We're going to take a deep dive into the historical background, and we're going to talk about this personal crisis that Ezekiel is in. But to start this series, we want to start where Ezekiel starts, and that is with the glory of God. The glory of God. The key verse of the chapter, the summary verse is 128. Would you read it aloud with me just so we can sit in it for another minute? With me, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. We're going to have three movements to our service today. The first is we're going to ask the question, what is the glory of the Lord? What is glory? Second, we're going to ask how Ezekiel responded to the glory of the Lord, and thus how we should respond to the glory of the Lord. And then finally, and this is the climactic piece of our service today, we're going to come to the Lord's table, but we're going to come asking the question, how can we even approach the glory of the Lord, and then we'll take communion together. What is the glory? How do we respond to the glory? How do we even approach the glory of the Lord at the table with Christ? This vision of Ezekiel, this chapter one, I would argue is the wildest and most detailed picture of God's glory that we have. There are others, Isaiah chapter six, where uh, the cherubim also appear, or Moses seeing the, the, the tail end of God in Exodus 33 and 34. And you may remember, those of you that were here like a year ago, Revelation was pretty wild. But this tops them all. I wanted to just make a couple of comments as we approach this vision, and then I want us to get inside the vision and look around. First thing, as we approach the vision, and we'll talk again more about this next week, but this is a specific vision given to a specific person, Ezekiel, to a specific people, Israel, and specifically Judah, well, again, next week, more on that, for a specific period 
600 B.C. to 580 B.C., when Israel is being invaded by the Babylonian Empire and the city of Jerusalem is under horrible siege. Specific person to a specific people for a specific period is this series of visions. And all I want to say about that is simply this. On the worst days of our lives, it's the glory of the Lord that can sustain us. Second thing as we approach, what the commentators point out, those who read Hebrew and Old Testament scholars, is how ugly the grammar is in this vision. I mean, there are misspelled words. There are sentences that stop in the middle of nowhere. There are words used in this vision used nowhere else in the Bible. And the, the grammar is just plain wrong in places. There are masculine subjects that take feminine verbs. There are plural subjects that are taking singular verbs, and it's, it's a mess. I submit to you that that mess is deliberate, that the style is the substance, and what you have here is someone writing, or should we say trying to write, after they've seen the glory of God. What's interesting is in chapter 10, Ezekiel tells the vision again, and there the grammar is perfect, and the brilliance is toned down. So he's had three weeks by chapter 10 to recover. But right now, he is shaken. And all I want to say about that is this. Not only does the glory of God sustain us on the hardest days of our lives, but if we really see the glory of God, it shakes us to a new season every time. The glory of God shakes awake our sleepy lives. Are you ready to enter inside the vision? What you see is you just take a, a sweep, you know, that we teach in our small groups when we learn how to study the word together, that one of the thing, great things to do is to read it a couple times and underline words that impact you or that are repeated or seem significant. If you were to underline the words that keep repeating in this vision, they would be this, two times, lightning, three times, fire, four times, brilliance, five times sparkling, not to mention glowing metal torches and burning coals. The inside of this vision is a thunderstorm. It's light everywhere. And what holds it together, beginning, middle, and end, is the word fire. It's interesting that throughout Scripture, God chooses fire to convey the place where he dwells, his outer uh, expression, his existence, is fire. Now, we in Colorado, we know a little bit about fire, don't we? Especially in dry summers, like the one that's probably coming this summer. Forest fires, we see how unquenchable they are, how destructive and powerful they are. We know about fire. We, we don't often think about it, but you know, you're, you have hot water because of a spark of fire. You have heat in the winter because of a spark of fire. And your car moves down the road because of a spark of fire. All of this God trying to convey to us that his existence is not dull or static or humdrum or tick-tock. William Blake, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the force of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? God is a consuming fire. 
And then all the brightness we see out of the fire, these images, and we'll walk through them quickly, just to give some background on this vision. The first thing you would notice in verses five and six were the four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. What's interesting to note is the faces. Each one of them are the best in class. Human beings, the rulers of creation. To the right is the lion, the, the king of the wild animal kingdom. The back was the eagle, the king of the birds. And on the left was the ox, the king of the domesticated animals. These, these four living creatures in chapter 10, Ezekiel calls them cherubim. They are the guardians of the divine. And in order to guard God's presence, it takes the best in class from each of the domain of uh, our existence. Now, it's also interesting with these that uh, while they're shocking to us, they would have not been shocking to Ezekiel's audiences. You see, in the Assyrian Empire and in the Babylonian Empire, they had cherubim-like figures with wings and animal faces and human faces as their paneling around their throne and up the steps on the pillars. You would see these kinds of things everywhere. And it's like God is trying to even connect within the Babylonian culture in which Ezekiel now sits. Four living creatures, each the best in class, guarding the presence of God. The next thing you notice as we go on further in the text are the wheels. And I won't read that. You can read it again, sit in it for a moment. But uh, the wheels are interesting because they're described as like wheels within wheels. And scholars talk about it as maybe being gyroscopes. Or one scholar mentioned it might be swiveling casters, which when I first read that thought, that would be an awesome name for a rock band. Some of you need to think about that. The swiveling casters. Now, what the idea is that these wheels can go in any direction. You see the cherubims, their wings were touching horizontally, so they were like a box, a chariot box that can move around, and because the wheels swivel, they can go in any direction, in all directions. And uh, it says that it's powered, it, the propulsion is from the Holy Spirit who lifts it up to move and then sets it back down. And when the Spirit lifts it up, the sound is deafening like a waterfall, like a tumult of an army, like a thunderclap. It's deafening, it gets your full attention. And so you have these four living creatures guarding the presence of God. It's propulsed by the Holy Spirit, which moves it everywhere and anywhere. And then the last thing, movement of the vision, you have living creatures, wheels, and then this vault over their thrones, which will look like a throne. Now, the word vault is often translated platform. And lapis lazuli is the most valuable gem of the ancient Near East, it's, we would call it sapphire, except lapis lazuli was transparent, like tinted windows. And you could see through it. And what you would see as these, so the, the living creatures have wings touching, wheels moving them, and then they have one wing up, and on the wing up, they're holding this platform. And you can see through this platform that there's a throne on it. And on that throne sits one in human form, who is fire. And I wonder if that could be Jesus. The point is that's the throne. That's 
the place of God, the transcendent one on the throne of all existence. Now, it's an amazing vision. And uh, what's interesting is when you get to the summary uh, statement again that we've, we've read, it's interesting how Ezekiel hedges a bit here, right? He says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, all of this a vision. So you have to realize that Ezekiel is not in the actual presence of God. Why? Because if any of us in this condition, our fallenness, were in the presence of God, we'd be dead in an instant because God is holy and burning in purity. So the only way that God can convey even a glimpse of who he is and where he is is through a vision of which Ezekiel is struggling to write it. He says it's the like the appearance of the likeness. It's two safety steps removed from the presence of God. In other words, it's God's glory veiled so that Ezekiel is not dead. And Ezekiel is trying to describe something twice removed that is undescribable. You see, Larry, get to the point. I'm finally here. Here's what glory is. Glory is the sum of all of God's attributes seen at once. You know, all this weird stuff, did you see on the wheels, it had human eyes as the rims, they were white, eyeball, white tires, <laughs> eyes everywhere. That means vision. That means God can see everything everywhere. And how about the wheels? Well, he's everywhere. He can go anywhere, and he is everywhere all the time. How about the lion, strength? How about the eagle, swift? How about the ox? He's the giver of life. How about the human? He's the ruler. Everything in the vision points to an attribute of who God is. And then Ezekiel sees him, not only each individual attribute, but all at once. And the response that he has is that the glory of God is indescribable. It's too much. God is glorious. Now I want to pause here and just knead this down in our life a little bit. This vision of glory, glory being the sum of everything that makes God God, it should impact our lives in a couple of ways. First, we need to understand that God in his glory is beyond us. We'd like to think that God is simple, easy to understand. The glory of God tells us that God is not a tame God. He is mysterious. He is beyond comprehension. And no matter how hard we study, how long we know him, God will always be in ways unimaginable to us. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we can't know God, because we can. I'm not saying that we can't understand the Bible, because we can. But what I am saying is that we will never fully figure out God. He's glorious. Now, that attribute, God's gloriousness, it drives our culture to frustration because we want a God 
we can figure out. We want a God who fits our understanding. We want a God whose actions in our lives make sense. And we want a God that when we read things about him in the Bible, or when he even pushes back on us, we don't want that kind of God. We want a God that's made in our image, which, by the way, was what got us in trouble in the Garden of Eden. We want a God we can figure out. We want a God who fits our understanding. And here's the thing. When we try to find that God that we can figure out and who fits our understanding, you know what it's like? It's like trying to pour the Pacific Ocean into a thimble. Can I ask you a question? I'm going to. Does God shock you? When you think about his attributes, when you think about his existence, when you think about who he is and on the throne, the transcendent one, does he shock you? Daniel Taylor wrote a book a few years back, Letters to His Children. And what it is is a collection of letters that while his kids were young and growing up, he would write them letters at certain times, what he felt were pivotal moments in their lives. And one particular time, he was having trouble with his 10-year-old son, Matthew, getting him to go to church. Because Matthew kept saying, church is boring, and even you, Dad, fall asleep. Here's what he wrote to his son. Think about it. Matthew, if a friend of yours called and said that a famous athlete or singer was going to be at his house and asked if you wanted to come over, wouldn't you go? Wouldn't you be excited? Of course, and so would I. Well, church is the place where God will be every time you go. Of course, he's with you whether you're in a church building or not, and he can be there in a special, but he can be there in a special way when many believers of Jesus gather to celebrate him. Sounds great, I hear you saying, Matthew, but then how come you fell asleep so much? If God is really there, I mean really there, then how come we aren't bug-eyed and breathless most of the time? That's a very good question. I wish I had a very good answer. Part of it is that God knows we can't take very much of him. It's like when you hold Fluffs, our hamster. If you squeezed very hard, Fluffs would be on his way to hamster heaven. You have to hold him gently, talk to him quietly. Well, God has to sort of be like that with us. Truthfully, though, the biggest reason might be that we don't want very much of God. We want God to stay in his cage like Fluffs does. We are afraid of losing control of our lives. We just want him to help us a little here, forgive us a little there, and let us handle the rest. And so we try to make church a safe place where we can get a little bit of God, but not too much. We don't like surprises, not even from God. We make our churches places where surprises aren't likely to happen. We ask God to come, but only if he will be polite. And therefore, little kids and adult kids often fall asleep even when their eyes are open. God is beyond us. 
Second thing this means for our life, the glory of God, seeing his glory, the sum of all his attributes is that God is above us. The transcendent one on the throne, above us. The word for glory in the Old Testament, it's used here in verse 28. The word for glory is the word kavod, and it means weight. The closest English linguistic tree would be the word matter. Because of who God is and the sum of all his attributes, God matters most. Now this gets tested in our lives all the time. If you fill out your income taxes and you fudge a little bit, money matters most. If you are in a marriage and you decide to leave the marriage for no good reason other than that you fall in love with another person, that other person holds the glory in your life. If you're dating someone and that person breaks up with you and you wanna kill yourself, that person holds the most weight in your life. Whenever you put the weight of your soul on the uh, weight of anything else that's not glorious, like God is glorious, you are in danger. You will destroy the people around you. You will destroy your own soul. There was a great book I heard uh, the author interviewed on NPR a few months back, Nancy Jo Sales. She wrote a book called American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. She walks up to this group of girls in a mall in Los Angeles and starts talking and interviewing one. And she, the, the one girl says to Nancy Jo, social media is destroying our lives. And Nancy Jo says, well, why don't you get off? And the girl said, because then I wouldn't have a life. Whenever we put the weight of our souls into anything else but the weight of the glory of God, we're not safe. And our lives become destructive. So what is the glory of God? It is the sum of all of God's attributes, which means that God is beyond us and God is is above us. And how does Ezekiel respond to the glory of God? Back to verse 28. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, what? I fell face down. Now we're going to pick up here more again next week and Ezekiel's ongoing response to the glory of God. But I want to first give you kind of a homework assignment and then I'm going to give you my two cents of what it means to respond to the glory of God. The homework assignment is, what does it mean for you to respond to the glory of God? What does it mean for you to fall face down? Responding to the glory of God means we fall face down. Now, I think it means at least two things for Ezekiel and maybe for us. First, I think falling face down after seeing the gloriousness of God means that we become humble. I mean, when we see the darkness of our heart in light of God's light, when we see our impurities in light of his holiness, when we see our smallness in light of his greatness, we become humble. It's all over the scriptures. Remember when Jacob wrestled with Jesus in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, and Jacob said, I saw your glory, and they wrestled, and the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. But in that limp, in that weakness, God's strength made Jacob the father of a nation. The best definition of humility I've ever heard was Chesterton's when he said, humility means you don't think less of yourself, but you think of yourself less. 
That's what the glory of God does in our lives. When he matters most, we think of ourselves less. The same thing happened to Habakkuk, another prophet. He saw the glory of the Lord in the temple, and then he cried out, let all the earth be silent. You see, when you see the glory of God, you get quiet. You don't talk about yourself. I think all of us would like to talk about ourselves less. How? The glory of God gets us quiet. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great stories of church history, he was a great theologian in the 1200s. He wrote Summa Theologica, a massive work, 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, 10,000 objections. Thomas tried to gather into one coherent whole all of truth, anthropology, science, ethics, psychology, political theory, and theology, all under God. But on December 6th, 1273, Thomas abruptly stopped his work. Celebrating mass in a chapel, he caught a glimpse of eternity and suddenly he knew that all his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he decided never to write again. And when his secretary, Reginald, asked, are you going to write any more, Thomas? He said, Reginald, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems so much as straw. And Aquinas died a year later without writing another word. The glory of God gets us quiet. Second thing it means to fall face down when we respond to the glory of God is that we become obedient, dutiful. You know, sadly, I think for, the, for by and large, what I wrestle with in my life, and I think you as well wrestle with this, is that God becomes our tool. So we pray to get forgiven. We go to church to get inspired. We, we serve so that God will give us a good life. God's our tool. But when you see the glory of God, you go, you pray, you serve just to get God. And the duty becomes delight in the presence of glory. I'm a Pennsylvania boy. There's this team in Pennsylvania, you may have heard of them, the only team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> Back in the 70s, they won four Super Bowls. There was a guy on that team who just happened to be double glory, a Penn State running back. His name was Franco Harris. Franco Harris was on the, east, the West Coast. The Steelers were playing a team on the West Coast. As was his custom, he walked into an Italian restaurant, some friends. Everyone in the restaurant knew Franco Harris was in the restaurant. Franco Harris had a propensity uh, of connecting with children. Many of his charities, even still today in Pittsburgh, are all about kids. And in the restaurant, there was a, a little girl, a young girl, and she worshiped Franco Harris. And they had made a connection, Franco had nodded to her, and then when the waiter came to take Franco's order, Franco said and pointed to the girl, I'll have what she's having. And immediately, without hesitation or invitation, the girl stands up, scrapes half the food off her plate under a bread plate, and takes it to Franco Harris. <laughs> In the presence of glory, duty becomes delight. When God 
is glorious. We serve with delight. So all of this, the glory, our response, how is it even possible? Well, we saw with Ezekiel, it was possible only because of veiled glory, a vision, a description of a vision, two safe layers. How do you and I today approach Christ, approach the glory of God the same way, veiled glory? His name is Jesus. When Jesus came to us, he was stripped of all that glory. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself of all the glory so that he could come beside us when we're sitting by an irrigation ditch on the worst day of our life. Sit down beside us, and in the face of Christ, we see the glory of God. And when we see that God was stripped, Jesus, of all his glory, it melts our hearts. It makes us see how much God loves us, that he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. God loves us so much that he would veil his glory so that that glory could be given to us and clothed in righteousness and that we can have an eternal existence in this presence with the Father. You see, it's a rainbow. Did you catch that? A rainbow. Do you know uh, in Hebrew there's only one word for rainbow, it's cassette, and it means bow, warrior's bow, or rainbow depending on the context. This is the first time in Ezekiel since it's been used in Genesis 9 when it said that God sets his bow in the clouds. The idea of a rainbow is that the string and the arrows are gone. God took those. We made the clouds dark, God's light came, and judgment ends with grace. And the same is true with Jesus. Spurgeon put it this way. In one of the great sermons preached during our Civil War, he preached this in England on the flood. Is not the bow the symbol of the warrior's power? With far-reaching arrows, he draws the string, and woe unto his enemies. But when a hero hangs up his bow upon the wall, what means he but that warfare is over and peace is proclaimed? Such is the rainbow. A bow, it is true, but a bow hung up. A bow without string or arrow, and such is Christ, God's bow. There I see him, a bow still, still mighty to destroy, but yet a bow without a string. He threw that away when he came from heaven to earth and lay slumbering in the manger. A bow without an arrow. Oh, blessed rainbow Jesus, when shall your beauties be beheld by mortal eyes? When shall all kings fall down before you and yield their scepters and their crowns to you? Because Jesus emptied himself of glory, we can see God's glory in the face of Christ. And that is what we do every time we come to the Lord's table. Now, in a moment we're going to pray and ready our hearts to come. Before that, just some very serious heart preparation. It says in Hebrews 12 that what we're doing right now, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire, and we can only approach him through Jesus.
But as we prepare our hearts for communion, some of us here in the room, we're like wood. We've never really been set on fire. You know, after the disciples saw Jesus after the resurrection, the two that walked with him on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus explained who he was, it says their hearts were on fire. Some of us, we're carrying around our wood. We're going to church. We're doing the rituals. We're doing good works. But your heart's never been passionate for God. And I think as you stand in line to receive communion, one of the prayers that might help you set your heart on fire would be this, as Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Because when you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, your heart is never the same. Some of us in this room are ashes. Whenever we talk about our walk with Jesus, it's always in the past tense. We know there was a time when you were really hot for the, for the things of the kingdom, when you were on fire, when you were smoldering in passion for God. But that was a long time ago, a while ago, and now you're just carrying around some buckets of ashes. And I would suggest a prayer for you. You're here, there's still embers in that ashes. And maybe your prayer as you stand ready to take communion is this, come, Holy Spirit, the wind, blow. Come, Holy Spirit, show me your glory. Come, Holy Spirit. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.